Well, good morning, everyone. Let's uh, start by going to the Lord in prayer and asking his blessing on our time. Lord, we come to you this morning uh, rejoicing that we get to know you, that we get to call you Father. We are no longer uh, enemies of yours, um, but we get to be your children, and uh, Jesus calls us friend. What an amazing thing. And so uh, we, we rejoice that we get to know you, and we rejoice that we get to be here this morning, that we are not in a situation where we have to be afraid to um, admit that we're going to church or afraid to walk into church or afraid to carry a Bible or share the gospel on the streets. Um, we don't have to uh, be afraid like that. We, we are a very blessed people, and so we rejoice and we praise you. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we are in these great circumstances uh, in, in this regard, help us to take uh, every advantage. And I pray that we would rejoice to be together as a church and that we would rejoice to be able to share the gospel with people on the street uh, or um, wherever we might run into people. We don't have to fear. And so, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to take advantage of these opportunities that we have to uh, live in, in quiet and in peace the way we do. I pray the ministry would be great. Lord, as we turn to your word and we uh, look into the book of Acts and see uh, some, some truths there about the Holy Spirit's working in the early church and um, uh, some things that we can learn there about what it means that, that you are holy, I pray, Lord, that you would bless our time. Help us to, um, uh, to hear from you today. I pray that our hearts would be responsive, that we would be... Um, listening, that we would be attentive to what you might have to say to us. Speak through me, I pray, and use this time for your glory and uh, and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I said in my prayer, we're going to be uh, in the book of Acts today, so go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. And uh, we spent... For those, for those who are who are in my Connect group, they're going to be amazed at how fast we're going to cover chapters today, because <laughs> we... We went through the book of Acts and it took a couple of years, maybe two and a half years for us to finish the book of Acts. And I thought we were moving along at a good clip, but uh, today we're going to cover several chapters. So they're going to kind of feel like uh, maybe maybe something's a little different. I don't know. Maybe I learned how to talk faster or something. But So um, we've been talking in this series about the holiness of God, right? We spent a couple of weeks talking about the holiness of the Father. Uh, we talked about the holiness of of the Son, and today we're going to talk about the holiness of the Spirit. He is, after all, the Holy Spirit, and so that's uh, who we're going to talk about today. Uh, it's interesting, we refer to the Holy Spirit not as an it, uh, but as He. And uh, it's interesting, in the Bible, in English, we don't really have, you know, um, gender for nouns. We don't have masculine and feminine and neuter necessarily for nouns. But in, in most languages, maybe, or at least the languages I've been in contact with, they do. And uh, Greek is no different. And the word for spirit is a neuter noun. And so that means when you talk about the spirit, if you're being grammatically correct, you would say it. It. And when you read in the New Testament, they don't say it. They break grammar rules to be theologically accurate. They talk about the Holy Spirit as He. And so uh, um, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, that's who we're referring to. And, and He is 
a personal being. He's the third person of the Trinity, the third person of the Godhead, and he is a he and uh, not an it. He's not a he's not an unknown spirit like the force out there that's that we can't really quantify and is impersonal. But instead, the Holy Spirit is a is a person of the Trinity. And so we're going to talk today particularly about the holiness of the spirit. And in order to do that, we're going to take a run at the first few chapters of the book of Acts. All right. And uh, so um, we we talked uh, not too long ago. We talked about what goes on in Acts chapter one, where uh, Jesus has risen from the dead and he's speaking to the disciples he's teaching them he's instructing them and they're in jerusalem right and he's just about to ascend to the father and the disciples ask him is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom you know you know you're in this in this glorified body it would be a really great time to you know you wouldn't have to put on armor you know just get on the horse and we'll go to battle and is it now you're going to do that and jesus said no he said i want you to wait and stay here in jerusalem and uh, i'm going to go be with the father and i'm going to send the holy spirit and the holy spirit is going to be with you and he's going to empower you to be my witnesses in jerusalem and in judea and samaria and to the end of the earth and so there was this expectation uh, that the holy spirit was going to come upon them and so of course jesus does ascend to the father and he goes away and they watch him go up and they're kind of left on their own they think right and so that's how acts chapter one fi- uh, finishes and then when we get to acts chapter two we're going to start seeing some really exciting things happen especially as the holy spirit begins to work but uh in, in summary of the expectation that the people had to this point, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would be coming. He said the Holy Spirit would baptize his church. He said the Holy Spirit would empower them to be witnesses. And so there they are. Jesus has gone. The next thing they expect is that the Holy Spirit will come. And so they're, they're there waiting and they're waiting. And, and so it's with that sort of anticipation that we break into Acts chapter 2 where we're going to begin to look at the Spirit-formed church starting in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read to you about uh, uh, how the believers were filled with the Spirit. The church was filled with the Spirit, starting in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Uh, familiar verses for us. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so here you have a, a, a powerful entrance of the Holy Spirit in a new way than he had before he's he's forming the church and and he comes uh, in in a very powerful way there's there's a loud sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind and these tongues as of fire divided and, and rested on top of each of them i have no idea what that looked like but that's just how it's described there and they begin to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance so you have a very visible massive big uh, uh, representation of uh, an entrance that's unforgettable and when the holy spirit comes uh, into his church and forms his church and and fills the believers right and so it's a it's a big invisible thing and, and and so big and visible not invisible it was visible that's what's so amazing about it is it's visible right and so um, you have this expectation that the early church had and now it's the, the first step has been met, and it was met beyond all their expectations, 
right? It was incredible. It amazed people. It surprised people. And so the, the coming of the Holy Spirit was a big and powerful thing, right? The believers in the early church were filled with the Spirit. And we're going to see now that the believers in the early church were also used by the Spirit, used by the Spirit. You see, after... After the Holy Spirit had come and these big visible things had happened in uh, the beginning of Acts chapter 2 and people speaking in tongues and the, the flames of, you know, as a, a fire on top of their heads and, and, and the rushing wind from heaven and all that stuff happens, there are onlookers who observe this kind of stuff and they gather around and of course they say, what in the world is going on? And some people think they're drunk and others are just confused about what's going on. And so here you have Peter filled with the Holy Spirit steps up and he addresses this huge crowd and so you have the first in a sense christian sermon happen there from uh, uh from the middle of acts chapter two where he's addressing all of these people and so the holy spirit empowers him in amazing ways uh to speak the truth uh about what is going on here and he points back remember to the old testament to the book of joel and said that this is this is what was prophesied was going to happen and uh, the spirit is at work and he's God is doing the thing that he said in the Old Testament that he was going to do. And so he preaches the gospel from there. And uh, and so Peter was used in, ama- in an amazing way. This is an incredible sermon and it answered the people's objections. And of course, what happened at the end of the sermon? <clears throat> Does anybody remember? 3000 people got saved. That's being used by the Holy Spirit. Right. And we have a summary at the end of chapter two about how the rest of the church was being used and what all was going on. So uh, going to the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 42, we have uh, what's going on with the rest of the church there. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So even signs and wonders were being done. There were amazing things. You have the community taking care of themselves. You have signs and wonders being done. You have Christians who had stuff being willing to sell their stuff for the sake of other Christians who didn't have anything or who were in need of like lunch. And so they provided for each other. And so you have the Christian church doing an amazing thing. The Spirit was using Christians to bless one another and to build up this community in amazing ways, so much so that uh, that the other people were noticing, other people were taking note, right? So that they grew in favor with men around them. And so the Holy Spirit is doing amazing things, right? He came the way he did, he filled them, and now he's using them. And also we're going to see that he multiplies them. So the new church is multiplied by the Spirit, right? So I already referred to the end of Peter's sermon, in the middle of Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches this big long sermon and it says there at the end of that sermon that those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's in verse 41. 3,000 souls. That's multiplication, right? It might have gone from being a couple of hundred at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 and now towards the end of Acts chapter 2, we have 3,000 new believers, right? God is working to multiply them. Likewise, 
at the end of, the, of, of uh, that chapter, the end of chapter 2, we see that that wasn't just a one-time effort. It wasn't like they had one really great day of evangelism and 3,000 people got saved. And then after that, you know, it was kind of nothing happened. No. Look at, look at the last verse in the chapter. So they were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God kept growing the church. The Holy Spirit was working in such a way that the church was being multiplied very quickly, very quickly. It was amazing what God was doing in this new spirit-formed church. The growth was incredible. On that first day, 3,000 people, and by the end of chapter 4, which we're going to get to in a little bit, by the end of chapter 4, the number of Christians had already grown, Christian men only, had grown to 5,000. That's not counting women and children. And so you have a massive growth. The Holy Spirit multiplied the early church at an incredible rate. This is exciting, right? So this is, this is what the Holy Spirit's doing in their lives. This is what they'd been told to expect. And God was, you know, far exceeding any expectations that they had by what was going on. So that's the Spirit-formed church. Now let's look at the Spirit-empowered church. We're going to see a couple of things there. We're looking at chapters 3 and chapter 4 mainly here. First of all, they were empowered to do signs and wonders. To do signs and wonders. I refer you back to the end of that summary uh, paragraph there at the end of chapter 2 where he talks about there being many signs and wonders done through the apostles. So this is something new. You know, this, this wasn't just... Elijah the prophet or Elisha the prophet going around and doing signs. This was the apostles. This was what God was doing in the church more broadly, not just through one guy in the desert. God was moving in a big way. The Holy Spirit was at work in the church even to do signs and wonders. And then we have in chapter 3, you have uh, Peter being confronted with this lame beggar a guy who had been lame from birth and he's in his 40s it says and so he was a beggar and they would he would be uh they would bring him to the outside of the what's called the beautiful gate of the temple that was a particular gate they would bring him there and that that's where he would beg for alms when people came in and out of the temple right and so uh so you had uh peter walking in there peter goes in and and uh, he's addressed by this guy and the guy's asking for alms and remember what peter says he says, uh, he says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And remember, for he was born lame. He's in his 40s. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. That's what God is doing. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the early church. It's amazing uh, the way they are uh, being empowered even to do signs and wonders in this early church. Beyond that, they're also empowered to have favor with men, to have favor with men because of the way the early church loved each other, because of the way they valued their time together. They They met together day after day and broke bread together because they loved being together the way they treated one another. They valued all their time together, uh, the way they took care of each other's needs and probably also because of the miracles going on. That's always fun to see, right? Um, The people were growing in favor with everyone around them. Those looking at them were amazed at what was going on. Just average people seeing what the Holy Spirit was doing in this church and it caught their attention. And they were looking and they were paying attention. And it was amazing and they grew in favor. And uh, there's a 
chapter 2 and verse 47 and, and chapter 5 and verse 13 tell about how those around them thought so highly of the Christians because of what God was doing through them at that time. The Spirit gave the Jerusalem church great favor with unbelievers around them. So they were empowered to have this favor with men. They were also empowered in speaking the word. In chapter 2, Peter's message to the crowds on the day of Pentecost, right? Obviously empowered by the Holy Spirit. You can tell by uh, how people responded to it, for one thing. And also, after he healed this lame beggar going into the temple in chapter 3, right? This And everyone knew about this guy because when they walked into the temple, they walked right by, you know, Joe sitting there. And he's, you know, he'd been there forever asking for alms, right? And here all of a sudden you see Joe jumping and dancing and leaping and praising God in the temple because of God healing him through Peter. And so a crowd gathers around and Peter, being a preacher, preaches. And God uses him. He's, in, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, to speak God's word there in chapter 4 or there in chapter 3. And then, because of what Peter did there in chapter 3, when he preaches to this whole crowd, not everybody liked him. Turns out that the religious leaders, the, the religious council, didn't so much like what they were saying. And so you have what goes on in chapter 4. They get called before the council. So you have Peter and John called before the council. And uh, they're questioned and they're quizzed and they're pressed about uh, about why they're preaching in the name of Jesus, why they're talking about the resurrection and you shouldn't do that and all that kind of stuff. And so Peter, in giving an answer to them, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he answers them in such a way that they're astounded. They're not sure what to say. And so they kind of say, well, yeah, but don't do that anymore. And okay, you can go. That's what the, the, all, the, the powerful counsel says to Peter and John, these two guys who are, who are unlearned men you know, from the backwaters or whatever, and this all-powerful counsel can't say anything more than, don't do that again. <laughs> so Peter and John were empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak in very powerful ways. So this is all the New Testament church's experience of the Holy Spirit at work in them. They had expected what was going to happen. They had expected that the Holy Spirit was going to come because Jesus said that was going to happen. They expected they would be empowered to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They knew that. Uh, they knew their Old Testament, so they had some expectations, and the Holy Spirit was blowing those expectations out of the water. So it is great, and it is exciting, and it's an amazing thing to be a Christian at this time and see all of this stuff going on. But with all of these wonderful and powerful things that the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of the church at this time, it seems like some in the church kind of forget that the, what the uh, Spirit who's been doing all of this is still the Holy Spirit. And that the church of Jesus Christ is to be a Spirit-sanctified church. A Spirit-sanctified. They're Spirit-formed. They're Spirit-empowered. And they're to be spirit-sanctified as well. And this brings us to the passage we're going to focus on today, which is chapter 5. Chapter 5, and we're going to look at uh, main, mainly verses 1 through 11 here. So we're talking about the spirit-sanctified church, the, the church that is made holy by the Spirit, because the Spirit is holy, the spirit-sanctified church. And uh, we're going to look, first of all, at a Satan-induced lie, a Satan-induced lie. So remember, all of these uh, the, these people were, 
you know, willing to sell property. You see the conclusion of chapter four there, that, that last paragraph of chapter four talks about how they were uh, taking care of each other. And if, if some people didn't have food, they were in need. Some people were willing, even willing to sell real estate to take the money, to give it to the apostles, that the apostles would give it to those in need, right? They were taking care of each other. It was an amazing thing that was going on. And, uh, and it was a, a clear sign of God working. Chapter 5 and verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So here you have the first glimmer that not everything was perfect in the early church. If you read till now, the only imperfection in the church was the pressure that came from the outside. The only real struggle that they had was people from the outside trying to arrest them or telling them not to do what they were doing or saying they were drunk when they spoke in tongues. This is the first inkling that you have that there's something within the church that's not quite as it should be. And you have Ananias and Sapphira. And they have a piece of property also, just like it said in, at the end of chapter 4 that Barnabas and, and others had, had land and they sold the land. They brought it to the, to the apostles and the apostles distributed it, etc. Well, here you have them and they decide they're going to game the system. Why didn't they just keep the land? They could have sold the land and kept 100% of the proceeds. Those were legitimate options. No one was pressuring them to do this. It was just what people were doing. But somehow they wanted to sell the land and maybe get the credit for being such generous donors. But at the same time, they kind of wanted to keep the money. So how can they work both of those things together? And so what they do is they concoct together a lie about what the sale price really was. And, oh, you know, we only sold it for this amount. And, you know, here it is. You know, it's our meager offering. Meanwhile, they've kept the remainder for themselves. So they're trying to benefit by the church thinking that they're wonderful people and yet being able to keep their money and actually not sacrifice at all. And so that's the Satan-induced lie. They bring that gift and they give it as though it were all of it. And so they're lying to God. They're lying to the church. And Peter says, actually, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Now That's interesting to say that they lied to the Holy Spirit. So this is a Satan-induced lie. Peter makes clear that this didn't come just from them. This is, this is from Satan himself. Somehow he sneaked into the church and he's planted this idea for this dishonest scheme. Uh, and it's about to lead to disaster. So you have a Satan-induced lie and now you have a spirit-inflicted consequence. Spirit-inflicted consequence. So continuing on, I'll pick up at verse 3 again. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. 
and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Things have been glorious in the church to this point. The Holy Spirit has been doing amazing things. And then you have this happen. And this is an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit did, by the way. This is incredible what happens here. First of all, Peter confronts Ananias about the lie. He could have done what he wanted with the land, and even after he sold it, he could have done whatever he wanted with the cash. It was his land. This wasn't communism. This wasn't confiscation. This wasn't a church edict that everyone had to sell all of their land. He just, of his own free will, sold it. He could have kept the land. He could have kept the money from it. But what he schemed to do was lie to the apostles and lie to the whole church and represent to everyone that he's giving all of this money that he made from the sale of this, of this land. So somehow he can get the credit for that, for being generous and selfless and yet at the same time be selfish. That's what, that's what he's after. And that's bad enough. But Peter point, points out that he has not only lied to the church, but in doing so, he's lied to the Holy Spirit. He's lied to God himself. The logic here is that lying to the church is not just lying to a group of people, but it's lying to the Spirit who creates and fills and sustains these people. It's a whole new level. It's not just lying to somebody. It's lying to the church of God on this earth, lying to the Holy Spirit. And the result is like nothing we've seen yet in the New Testament, particularly in the New Testament church. Ananias drops dead when he hears Peter's words. Likewise, when uh, Sapphira shows up and she's questioned, she drops dead at the apostles' feet. Drop dead. Is that startling? That's startling. That's startling. Here's the point. The Spirit is not only here to fill us, to comfort us, to empower us for ministry, and to do wonderful things in our lives. He's not here to make us the center of God's world. The Holy Spirit is here as God's presence, God's holy presence at work in our lives. Just like the Father, the Spirit is first and foremost holy. So Ananias and Sapphira had concocted this scheme and it's incredibly offensive to God. It's incredibly offensive to the Holy Spirit, so much so that he didn't just discipline them. He didn't make them sick for a time. He didn't take away all their stuff. He didn't strike them with boils or with leprosy or anything like that. He killed them. 
Apparently God thinks highly of his holiness and doesn't appreciate when his people would treat his holiness with such disregard. So Ananias and Sapphira learned a massive lesson and died. And the New Testament church learned a massive lesson. And we should learn a massive lesson. So we have the spirit-inflicted consequence. And now let's see the spirit-inspired result. Finishing that chapter, chapter 5 and verse 11. And fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Fear came upon the whole church. Great and appropriate fear. Let us not treat the Holy Spirit with contempt as though he's some kind of genie in a bottle to do our bidding. Bound to us to obey us somehow. He is the Holy Spirit of God. He's the third person of the Trinity. He has existed in one essence with the Father and the Son for all eternity. He was involved in creation. He moved men to write scripture. He gives physical life to all things and spiritual life to the redeemed. That's who the Holy Spirit is. Let's treat him that way. And that's the kind of fear that came upon them. We should not be afraid of the Holy Spirit. But we should be afraid to sin against the Holy Spirit. We don't need to be afraid of Him. We should fear Him. And that means that we don't, we don't want to cross Him. We don't want to misuse the Holy Spirit. We don't want to misrepresent the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be contemptuous or presumptuous with the Holy Spirit. Let's not take Him for granted. He's holy. Verse 13 and 14. Continuing on just a little bit later. None of the rest dared join them. None of the rest dared join them. So here you have people on the outside looking in. And after this situation with Ananias and Sapphira particularly. People on the outside were thinking. This is a, this is a big deal. What's going on with the church. It's incredible. And it's, it's alluring. It's drawing. It's enticing. And I, I, I kind of want to be a part of it. But I don't want to join it just like I do a social club because the price is pretty high. But, so none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And that, that presents an interesting picture that I want us to think about for a second. What was going on in the New Testament church was the kind of thing that people didn't just want to sign up for. They didn't just want to go there because it's cool. There were amazing things going on and people had great respect for them. But they didn't just want to get in willy-nilly. They were a little scared. But believers, more than ever, believers are being added to their number. There's a difference there. and this is, this is the essence of the gospel, especially as it relates to the church. You see, those on the outside saw a picture of the holiness of God, saw a picture of the New Testament church being holy, and it was a thing that attracted them from a distance. But when they got close, they were a little scared, because remember that whole Ananias and Sapphira thing? Apparently, this God that they're preaching is really holy. And I want unbelievers around me to see that God is really holy. 
that my coming to church is not just because I like you folks, and I do. And it's not just because I need emotional support, I do. It's not just because of any of those reasons. I come here because of what God has done in my life. And I want people around me to see that the God I serve, the God I preach, the God of the Bible is a holy God. Like these people saw. So that they they were attracted, but kind of like you're attracted to a bonfire. You don't want to get in it, but you kind of want to stand near it. And that's kind of what was going on. But more than ever, believers were being added. So when a person sees the holiness of God and they understand, and in the New Testament example right here, they understood by looking at the church, when they understand that God is actually holy, and this isn't just a fun game, this isn't just a social club where we go so we can feel warm fuzzies, but this is a real interaction, a real relationship with a real God who is really holy, they have fear. But then God speaks mercy. God speaks mercy to them, just like God did to Isaiah. Just like we looked at last week when Jesus said, Peter, don't don't be afraid. When God speaks mercy, when when he makes a person on the outside looking in who wants to be nearer the bonfire, but it's it's hot and they're going to get burned. When he says to them, yes, you are a sinner and yes, I am holy, but I have made a way for you safely to be in my presence. And that is through Jesus. I sent Jesus, my son, into this earth to live a perfect life, die on the cross in your stead to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could be forgiven of your sin and so that you could have his righteousness and thus safely come into my presence. And so people on the outside were scared and they didn't dare join them. But more and more believers were being added. People to whom God had spoken mercy, where they understood there is a way that I can join that and not be fried by this holy God. That's because Jesus stepped in to take the penalty for my sin from holy God, that I could have his righteousness, that I could have forgiveness, and I can be in God's presence. Or as Paul says, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the message about the holiness of God. It is real and it is frightening. And here you had a situation even with Ananias and Sapphira from within the church brought to a a, a place by the instigation of Satan and the sin of their own hearts where they lied to the Holy Spirit. And God took very great offense at the holiness of his spirit being besmirched and he put them to death. People were afraid. But God offers that mercy in Jesus that we can come into his presence. That we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's powerful. That's powerful. And that's what we get to celebrate here with the Lord's table. Jesus' great sacrifice for us. So that those who are on the outside and are kind of drawn to the church are kind of drawn to God in, in some way in their mind, but they're scared because he's holy. They don't really want to get in there because they know they're going to get fried. And God speaks peace in the person of Jesus Christ. And so uh, you men who are serving, come on up 
to the front, if you would. We're going we're gonna to take communion together. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is the time we get, to, we get to celebrate exactly what we're talking about here. Because at one time we were on the outside. And whether we realized it or not, we would get fried if we just jumped in the fire. That's the truth of this whole thing. You don't just overcome your fears and jump in. No, no. It's the mercy spoken from God to you in the person of Jesus Christ that makes it so that we can enter his presence and have peace with him and not be fried. And that's why we celebrate this right here. By the way, in the New Testament church, First uh, Corinthians, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth had numerous problems, if you've read First Corinthians. One of those problems was that they treated this very lightly. They would get together and they didn't do, you know, grape juice like we do. They did wine and they did a lot of wine. And those who got there early got to drink a little extra or a lot extra. And so those who got there late didn't get any. And the guys who were there first were drunk. All right. The people who got there early would eat all the food or they'd bring extra delicious food or whatever. And they wouldn't let the poor people have it. It was big, big issues. And as a result, in that church, many were sick and some had even died. God is concerned about his holiness. And so as we come to this today, this is, this is a symbol, this is a reminder to us of the peace that God speaks to us in the person of Jesus. That if we will trust in him, if we will put our faith in him alone, we will trust in the sacrifice Jesus has made for us, that exchange happens where I'm forgiven of my sin because it was placed on Jesus and punished. And instead I get his righteousness before God and I can have peace with God that's the peace that's spoken to us and that we're celebrating here. So as we come here and as the elements are being passed later on, take some time and pray and ask God, maybe you have offended his Holy Spirit. Maybe you have treated his spirit with contempt and you've not been uh, reverent towards him. Maybe you've ignored what he said when he convicts you concerning sin. Eh. Or maybe you've ignored his promptings when he says to go do something. Maybe in some other way, I don't know. Or maybe there's some other sin that God will bring to mind. Confess that to him. Confess it. Repent. And he'll forgive you.